If you have a Bible, turn with me, please, to Jeremiah chapter 32. If you're using a church Bible, it's page 794, or in the larger print Bibles, 1231. Last week, we looked at chapter 31, where God promised a new covenant, a new relationship with his people in days to come. He said he would transform his people from the inside out, starting with their hearts, and he would make them secure and clean forever. And in the short term, God promised the people of Israel that they would return from exile and Jerusalem would be rebuilt. That would be like phase one of his new covenant plans. It would set things up for the creation of a new people with new hearts. Jeremiah 31 is one of the most significant chapters in the Old Testament. And today, you and I can look back at the words of that chapter, knowing what God has done to make his new covenant a reality. He came to earth personally in the person of his son, and Jesus Christ, God the Son, died to bring about this new covenant that was promised through Jeremiah so long before that. Because of Jesus, men and women can know God. We can experience his forgiveness. We can become part of his new creation. It's beautiful. But Jeremiah chapter 32 shows us, in Jeremiah's own lifetime, God's new covenant promises seemed more far-fetched and ridiculous than they did beautiful. Just to remind you of the situation we're about to jump into in chapter 32, the Babylonian armies have already been twice to Jerusalem. First, during the reign of King Jehoiakim in 605 BC, they came, they took away some of the people and some of the treasures of the city. Then the Babylonians came back a second time in 597 BC during the reign of Jehoiachin. That time, they took considerably more, more treasures and 10,000 more people. The passage we're about to read is taking place 10 years after that second Babylonian attack, and we find they've come back a third time. Jeremiah 32, we'll read the whole chapter. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the 10th month of Zedekiah, king of Judah which was the 18th year of Nebuchadnezzar. The army of the king of Babylon was then besieging Jerusalem. And Jeremiah the prophet was confined in the courtyard of the guard in the royal palace of Judah. Now Zedekiah king of Judah had imprisoned him there saying, why do you prophesy as you do? You say, this is what the Lord says. I'm about to give this city into the hands of the king of Babylon and he will capture it. Zedekiah, king of Judah, will not escape the Babylonians, but will certainly be given into the hands of the king of Babylon, who will speak with him face to face and see him with his own eyes. He will take Zedekiah to Babylon, where he will remain until I deal with him, declares the Lord. If you fight against the Babylonians, you will not succeed. Jeremiah said, the word of the Lord came to me. Hanamel, son of Shalom, your uncle, is going to come to you and say, Buy my field at Anathoth, 
because as nearest relative, it is your right and duty to buy it. Then, just as the Lord had said, my cousin Hanamel came to me in the courtyard of the guard and said, buy my field at Anathoth in the territory of Benjamin, since it is your right to redeem it and possess it. Buy it for yourself. I knew that this was the word of the Lord. So I bought the field at Anathoth from my cousin Hanamel and weighed out for him 17 shekels of silver. I signed and sealed the deed, had it witnessed, and weighed out the silver on the scales. I took the deed of purchase, the sealed copy containing the terms and conditions, as well as the unsealed copy, and I gave this deed to Baruch, son of Neriah, the son of Masaiah, in the presence of my cousin Hanamel, and of the witnesses who had signed the deed, and of all the Jews sitting in the courtyard of the guard. In their presence, I gave Baruch these instructions. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says. Take these documents, both the sealed and unsealed copies of the deed of purchase, and put them in a clay jar so that they will last a long time. For this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says. Houses, fields, and vineyards will again be bought in this land. After I had given the deed of purchase to Baruch, son of Neriah, I prayed to the Lord. Ah, sovereign Lord, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. You show love to thousands, but bring the punishment for the parents' sins into the laps of their children after them. Great and mighty God, whose name is the Lord Almighty. Great are your purposes and mighty are your deeds. Your eyes are open to the ways of all mankind. You reward each person according to their conduct and as their deeds deserve. You performed signs and wonders in Egypt and have continued them to this day. In Israel and among all mankind and have gained the renown that is still yours. You brought your people Israel out of Egypt with signs and wonders, with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, and with great terror. You gave them this land you had sworn to give to their ancestors, a land flowing with milk and honey. They came in and took possession of it, but they did not obey you or follow your law. They did not do what you commanded them to do, so you brought all this disaster on them. See, how the siege ramps are built up to take the city. Because of the sword, famine, and plague, the city will be given into the hands of the Babylonians who are attacking it. What you said has happened as you now see. And though the city will be given into the hands of the Babylonians, you, sovereign Lord, say to me, buy the field with silver and have the transaction witnessed. Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. I am the Lord, the God of all mankind. Is anything too hard for me? Therefore, this is what the Lord says. I am about to give this city into the hands of the Babylonians and to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, who will capture it. The Babylonians who are attacking this city will come in and set it on fire. They will burn it down 
along with the houses where the people arouse my anger by burning incense on the roofs to Baal and by pouring out drink offerings to other gods. The people of Israel and Judah have done nothing but evil in my sight from their youth. Indeed, the people of Israel have done nothing but arouse my anger with what their hands have made, declares the Lord. From the day it was built until now, this city has so aroused my anger and my wrath that I must remove it from my sight. The people of Israel and Judah have provoked me by all the evil they have done. They, their kings and officials, their priests and prophets, the people of Judah and those living in Jerusalem, they turned their backs to me and not their faces. Though I taught them again and again, they would not listen or respond to discipline. They set up their vile images in the house that bears my name and defiled it. They built high places for Baal in the valley of Ben-Hinnom to sacrifice their sons and daughters to Molech. Though I never commanded, nor did it enter my mind that they should do such a detestable thing and so make Judah sin. You are saying about this city, by the sword, famine, and plague, it will be given into the hands of the king of Babylon. But this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I will surely gather them from all the lands where I banish them in my furious anger and great wrath. I will bring them back to this place and let them live in safety. They will be my people and I will be their God. I will give them singleness of heart and action so that they will always fear me and that all will then go well for them and for their children after them. I will make an everlasting covenant with them. I will never stop doing good to them and I will inspire them to fear me so that they will never turn away from me. I will rejoice in doing them good. And will assuredly plant them in this land with all my heart and soul. This is what the Lord says. As I have brought all this great calamity on this people. So I will give them all the prosperity I have promised them. Once more fields will be bought in this land. Of which you say it is a desolate waste. Without people or animals. For it has been given into the hands of the Babylonians. Fields will be bought for silver, and deeds will be signed, sealed, and witnessed in the territory of Benjamin, in the villages around Jerusalem, in the towns of Judah, and in the towns of the hill country, of the western foothills, and of the Negev, because I will restore their fortunes, declares the Lord. This is God's word. And there is a statement in the New Testament which sums up the message of this passage. We live by faith, not by sight. That statement sums up the situation of God's people on this earth. And it is illustrated for us here in Jeremiah chapter 32. This chapter is about living by faith. After all, chapter 31's promises of God's heart-changing, world-changing work that's going to come in the future, in chapter 32, we find ourselves in the middle of chaos and fear. 
One commentator describes this as one of the darkest moments in all Israel's history. The events of this chapter take place inside the city of Jerusalem, which is completely surrounded by the Babylonian army. The city is under siege. It has been under siege for months already. And Jeremiah himself is not actually in prison, but he is imprisoned in the courtyard of the royal guard. Why is he there? He's there for being negative which is highly ironic given what Jeremiah Jeremiah actually does in this passage. But as King Zedekiah sees it, Jeremiah is a naysayer. He's been announcing that the Babylonians are going to win, which by this stage is completely obvious to everyone. But Zedekiah thinks it's Jeremiah's duty to stay positive until the bitter end and to say positive things. So Zedekiah tries to hush Jeremiah up by confining him to the palace barracks. And while he's there for being negative, Jeremiah does something incredible. Something more hopeful than probably anyone else in the city is willing to do at this point. He buys a piece of land which he cannot get to and which has zero value at this point because it's occupied by the Babylonians. The Lord tells Jeremiah his cousin Hanamel is going to show up. He's going to offer to sell Jeremiah a field. And sure enough, Jeremiah tells us in verse 8, just as the Lord had said, my cousin Hanamel came to me in the courtyard of the guard and said, buy my field at Anathoth in the territory of Benjamin, since it is your right to redeem it and possess it. Buy it for yourself. Anathoth is Jeremiah's hometown. It's just three miles away from Jerusalem. And when Hanamel says to Jeremiah, it is your right to redeem the field, he's talking about something that's quite important in Old Testament law. When God gave Israel the land, it was divided into large plots for each tribe of Israel. And then within that, into smaller plots for each clan And then again, smaller plots for each family. And that land was supposed to stay with the people it was given to. The idea was to stop wheeler dealers from accumulating more and more land while some people ended up with nothing. How did the land stay with the people it was given to? Well, if someone got into financial difficulties and they had to sell their land, The idea was that a relative would step in and buy it. That kept the land in the family. And that's what Hanamel is asking Jeremiah to do. We're not told why he's selling the land. He is obviously trapped in the city along with everyone else. And it could be that Hanamel is just trying to profit from the situation by selling land that's useless to him. But what we do know is that Jeremiah has the right to refuse in this situation. As a relative, he has a right to buy the land, but he could refuse, in which case Hanamel would move on to other relatives and offer it to them. Except, of course, it's highly unlikely anyone else would take up the offer. They can't make use of the land 
And owning the deeds to the land isn't going to mean much at all. Because the Babylonians have grabbed it all. What do they care who has the deeds? They're occupying the land. But Jeremiah, you remember, has been making bold pronouncements that God is going to give the land back to the Israelites. And Hanamel comes to Jeremiah with this offer. Really, this is a put your money where your mouth is moment for Jeremiah. And God says to him, go ahead and buy it. So Jeremiah Jeremiah takes a significant step of faith. And he takes it very boldly and deliberately if you look again at verse 9. So I bought the field at Anathoth for my cousin Hanamel and weighed out for him 17 shekels of silver. I signed and sealed the deed, had it witnessed, and weighed out the silver on the scales. I took the deed of purchase, the sealed copy containing the terms and conditions, as well as the unsealed copy. And I gave this deed to Baruch, son of Neriah, the son of Messiah, in the presence of my cousin Hanamel, and of the witnesses who had signed the deed, and of all the Jews sitting in the courtyard of the guard. In their presence, I gave Baruch these instructions. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Take these documents, both the sealed and unsealed copies of the deed of purchase, and put them in a clay jar so that they will last a long time. For this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Houses, fields, and vineyards will again be bought in this land. We noticed earlier that Jeremiah is not actually in prison And the barracks where he's being held is obviously a busy enough place. So plenty of people are there to witness what Jeremiah does. And he goes through this whole elaborate legal procedure. This is deliberate, it's public, and it's an act of faith in God's promises. Jeremiah does not expect to get this land anytime soon. The documents are put into long-term storage. This system of storing documents was very widely used. And in fact, in 1947, lots of documents in jars were found in caves at Qumran in Israel. They had been preserved for 2,000 years. So Jeremiah has the deed of purchase put into storage because he knows the benefits of what he has done are not going to come until far in the future. He's been preaching about what God's going to do, and now he invests in what he's been preaching about. He puts his money where his mouth is. And by doing so, Jeremiah shows his faith that God will keep his promises and give the land back to Israel. So one day, the descendants of Jeremiah's family will be able to farm this field that he's just bought. What's the message for you and me as we watch Jeremiah do this? The message is true faith invests in what God has promised. True faith doesn't just talk about what it believes. It doesn't just sing about what it believes. True faith buys into what it believes. It makes actual investments in God's promises. Now for Jeremiah, that meant emptying his piggy bank 
and handing out his 17 shekels to his cousin. That's how he invested in what God had promised. What does it mean for you and me to do that? Well, on a very obvious level, it means we invest our money in God's kingdom. Jesus said, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. If you and I truly believe God's promises about an eternal kingdom, then we will invest our finances in local and international gospel work. Because that work builds God's eternal kingdom. When it comes to showing what I believe, what I do with my money says a lot more than my words do. And we could widen this out, of course, to how we invest our time and our energy and all the other resources that we have. That says a lot about what we actually believe. But there's another significant aspect to this. Every time you and I choose to obey God's word, we are making an investment of faith. Every act of obedience is an investment of faith that God's way is best. And that he will do what he has promised to do. Every act of obedience is buying into what we say we believe just as much as Jeremiah's 17 shekels was. Every time I choose honesty instead of deceit. Every time I choose patience instead of harshness. Self-control instead of self-indulgence. Forgiveness instead of bitterness. Faithfulness instead of faithlessness. Every time you and I choose any kind of obedience to God, we are making an investment of faith. That God is wise, that his way is best, and that his promises can be trusted. Jeremiah wasn't just a talker. He invested in what he preached. He actually bought into the promises of God. But that does not mean faith came easily to Jeremiah. Sometimes you and I might be tempted to dismiss the faith we see in biblical characters because we imagine they were superhuman somehow. But verses 16 to 25 show us Jeremiah found this whole situation to be perplexing. In these verses, we hear Jeremiah praying. And his prayer shows that faith investments often look ridiculous. It is highly likely Jeremiah was the only person in Jerusalem who bought land during this siege. It went against human wisdom to do what he did. Remember, the Babylonians have come twice before. They're not an unknown quantity. And both times when they came before, they were an irresistible force. Human wisdom says this time is going to be no different. 
In fact, God himself has said the Babylonians are going to overcome Jerusalem. They look all-powerful. Their empire looks utterly unshakable. It seems ridiculous to make an investment counting on the Babylonian empire just disintegrating and the land returning to Israel. Jeremiah looks like a fool. Investing on the strength of God's promise when God's promise sounds like a fairy tale. Jeremiah looks like a fool. No doubt people are calling him a fool. And not surprisingly, he starts to feel like a fool. Look how his prayer starts in verse 17. Ah, sovereign Lord. We've come across this word ah before in the book. Every other time it's been translated alas. I have no idea why it's translated differently here. But anyway, this is the fourth time Jeremiah has used the word. And each time, it's been an expression of dismay. This is the word Jeremiah uses when he feels overwhelmed and bewildered. So now we know Jeremiah's faith is genuine. He has bought into what he said he believed. But that does not mean he finds his situation easy. It doesn't mean he finds faith easy. He knows his investment looks foolish to everyone else, and he's starting to wonder if it is foolish. We'll see that later in his prayer. Faith is never easy. If it was easy, it wouldn't be faith. But look how Jeremiah deals with this. He doesn't put his obedience to God on hold during this until he's worked things out to his satisfaction. No, he obeys, he invests in what God has promised to do, and then, verse 16 says, after Baruch has gone off to put the deed of purchase into storage, then Jeremiah prays to the Lord, Ah, alas, I'm confused, Lord. He doesn't let his confusion interfere with his obedience. But then in his prayer, after admitting his confusion, see how Jeremiah acknowledges God's character and power. Look again at verse 17. Ah, sovereign Lord, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. That is the truth that moved Jeremiah to invest in God's promises. The truth that God is above every problem and every other power. Jeremiah knows he's praying to the God of all creation. Nothing is too hard for this God. And the verses that follow, Jeremiah goes on to speak about God's ways in this world. He speaks about the exodus from Egypt, where God showed his power in incredible ways. Look down to verse 21. You brought your people Israel out of Egypt with signs and wonders by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and with great terror. You gave them this land you had sworn to give to their ancestors, a land flowing with milk and honey. Jeremiah has a great grasp of God's awesome power, his omnipotence. 
So what's Jeremiah's problem? Why is he perplexed? Why does he feel foolish? He feels foolish because he has a hard time connecting God's great power to his own particular situation. Yes, Lord, you did it in Egypt. You turned that situation around. You came through for your people then. But somehow I wonder, Lord, will you do it here? Will you turn this situation around? That is the punchline of the prayer. In verse 24, see how the siege ramps are built up to take the city because of the sword, famine, and plague. The city will be given into the hands of the Babylonians who are attacking it. What you said has happened as you now see. And though the city will be given into the hands of the Babylonians, you, sovereign Lord, say to me, buy the field with silver and have the transaction witnessed. Lord, when I see those Babylonian soldiers, just masses of them out there, I feel foolish investing in what you've promised to do. It seems ridiculous. Philip Ryken says, many believers trust that God can do all things. They believe in the power of God to save sinners. But when it comes to their own affairs, they doubt the reality of God's omnipotence. That's what Jeremiah is experiencing. Does he believe in the power of God? Absolutely. Look at the Exodus. What an amazing thing. But when I see those siege ramps being built just outside these walls, it's hard to trust you and obey. Jeremiah is doing the best thing he could do. Taking this to God, focusing on God's greatness. It's the right thing to do. But the challenge Jeremiah is facing is trusting that God's greatness stretches even to this situation. And I think you and I can have very similar difficulties. We know God's power is immense. We agree he is the unrivaled king of the universe. But when you and I are in a tight situation, we wonder, don't we, can I really trust God in this situation? If I make a faith investment here by obeying him, will it be a worthwhile investment? Will God bring good from it in the end? Or should I just try and save my own skin right now by doing what everyone else is doing? Maybe we think God saves his power for the big events and he doesn't have any to spare for the events of our little lives. If you and I ever think that way, then we need to hear what comes next. Because verses 26 to 44 show that God's word builds our faith. First, it confirms God's power. In verse 27, God responds to Jeremiah and he challenges Jeremiah about Jeremiah's own prayer. In verse 17, Jeremiah had prayed, Nothing is too hard for you, Lord. 
He believed that in theory. But here in verse 27, God says, Is anything too hard for me? You seem to think this situation is actually too hard for me. And I think by choosing the words he does, God is also reminding Jeremiah of another situation. When this very same question was asked by the Lord. Back in Genesis chapter 18, Abraham and Sarah were an elderly couple. They had never had any children, but God promised they would have a son within the next year. In response to that, Sarah laughed. It was ridiculous. But God challenged Sarah's laughter. He asked her, Is anything too hard for the Lord? And Genesis tells us, in a year, Sarah had a child. She called the child Isaac, which means he laughs. Sarah had to admit in the end, yes, I laughed at God's promise, but God had the last laugh. He delivered on his promise. I think God is reminding Jeremiah of that. It doesn't matter what our situation is. When you and I ask, is anything too hard for the Lord? The answer is always no. Absolutely nothing is too hard. When God makes a promise, he delivers. It's always worth investing in what he has promised. The Bible confirms that for us again and again. Then in verses 28 to 35, God reminds Jeremiah, this current situation where Babylon is overcoming Jerusalem, this is an example of God keeping his promises. Through Jeremiah himself, God has been announcing for years this was going to happen. The siege ramps that Jeremiah can see Outside the window are actually no surprise. They're a confirmation of God's trustworthiness and power. He is pouring out his wrath on Judah just as he promised. Look down to verse 31 where God says to Jeremiah, From the day it was built until now, this city has so aroused my anger and wrath that I must remove it from my sight. The people of Israel and Judah have provoked me by all the evil they have done. They, their kings and officials, their priests and prophets, the people of Judah and those living in Jerusalem. As you and I look out our windows, we don't see siege ramps, but we do see a world that is hell bent. As we go out our front door, we go into a world that often calls good evil and evil good. A world that worships money, sex, and power. Where men and women want to be God. Where their lives defy the real God in so many ways. Even that confirms God tells the truth. In Romans chapter 1, Paul says, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. 
The wrath of God is being revealed. So what form does that wrath take today? Does it take the form of fire falling from the sky and burning people up? Holes opening up in the ground? Is that how God is revealing his wrath today? No, God is pouring out his wrath today by giving people over to their sin. Letting them run with it. That's what Romans 1 goes on to say. The world that you and I see is not a puzzle to us if we listen to Scripture. Scripture tells us what we see is God letting people have what they want. They're experiencing slavery to all the things they have chosen instead of him. And so it's no surprise to Christians when we're the odd ones out so often. When we're laughed at or pitied for our acts of faith and obedience. That's what Jesus promised it would be like. One way God builds our faith is by helping us make sense of the world we see out of our window. Helping us make sense of how that world reacts to us when we live by the principles and values of another world. That's what we're doing as Christians. Living by the values of another world. So of course people think we're mad. There'd be a problem if they thought you and I were totally sane. That would mean we fit it in with this world that's passing away. God's world builds, builds our faith because it explains the world we see. Those siege ramps outside Jerusalem were ugly and they were frightening to everyone in the city. But for those who listened to God's word, those siege ramps were not a surprise. They were exactly what God had promised. That didn't make them fun, but it did show God was trustworthy. And today, only God's word can explain why so much in this world is beautiful Amazing beauty in this world. And yet so much is broken and unsatisfying. Only God's word can explain that. It's because we live in a good world that has been subjected to frustration. It's in bondage to decay because of human sin. It's a world groaning to be set free. God's word builds our faith because it explains the world we see. And because it shows the heart of God. Much of verses 36 to 44 are a repetition of the new covenant promises we heard in chapter 31. Look down to verse 37. God says... I will surely gather them from all the lands where I banish them in my furious anger and great wrath. I will bring them back to this place and let them live in safety. They will be my people and I will be their God. I will give them singleness of heart and action so that they will always fear me and do, and that all will then go well for them and for their children after them. 
I will make an everlasting covenant with them. I will never stop doing good to them. And I will inspire them to fear me so that they will never turn away from me. God says he will change his people from the inside out so they will always fear him. In the Bible, to fear God means to recognize his proper place and our proper place. He is God and we are not. To fear God is to recognize he has the power of life and death over us. That recognition can only lead to awe and reverence on our part. And God says he will give his people hearts full of that healthy reverence for him. It won't be just external religion. It won't even just be skin deep. It will be heartfelt. Because it's heartfelt, it will lead to lasting commitment. These people will be truly devoted to the Lord. But then look what God says about his own heart. In verse 41. I will rejoice in doing them good. And will assuredly plant them in this land with all my heart and soul. Nothing builds our faith like getting to know the God we have faith in. And here God reveals himself in an incredible way. I will rejoice in doing them good is literally, I will rejoice over them. So God is saying more than, I take pleasure in blessing my people. He says, I take pleasure in my people, in them. Now, maybe today we're so schooled in how great we all are that we just shrug our shoulders when we hear that. But why wouldn't God take pleasure in us? We're fab, aren't we? But if you and I have any grasp of what the Bible says about sin, if you have any sense of our own sin and how offensive it is to this holy God, then we will understand the amazing thing God is saying here. I will so transform my people that they become a source of delight to me. I will rejoice in what I have made them to be. And God says, I am totally committed to bringing this about. I am in this with all my heart and soul. God never regrets his new covenant promises. He never feels half-hearted about them. He is fully invested in making them a reality. And when he is finished, he will rejoice over us. See, the prophet Zephaniah, he actually says, I will sing over you. God will rejoice over his fully transformed new creation people, including you. God's word builds our faith because it shows us the heart of God. And when you and I see his heart, don't we want to buy into what he's doing? 
Don't we want to make faith investments in what he has promised? By obeying him every day, by living for him in every situation, even when this world looks at us and thinks we're mad? We noticed earlier Jeremiah had trouble connecting God's sovereign power to his own personal circumstances. But look how God reassures him at the end of our passage. Jeremiah felt foolish for buying a field in enemy territory, remember. But God says to him in verse 43, Once more, fields will be bought in this land, of which you say it is a desolate waste, without people or animals, for it has been given into the hands of the Babylonians. Fields will be bought for silver, and deeds will be signed, sealed, and witnessed in the territory of Benjamin, in the villages around Jerusalem, in the towns of Judah, and in the towns of the hill country, of the western foothills, and of the Negev, because I will restore their fortunes, declares the Lord. Jeremiah, you have made an investment in faith. And I will bring a great return on your investment. The people who today think you're mad will one day have to acknowledge you were wise to invest in what I promised. And it's the same for us. No investment made in God's kingdom will ever be wasted, it will come good. Every act of obedience will produce fruit. It will mean something. It will last for eternity. When all the other things people lived for and spent themselves for are finally gone, when the things they invested in have decayed and been thrown into history's dustbin, the investments we have made in God's kingdom will be paying off paying off in ways we could probably never have imagined. So keep going. Keep living by faith in God's promises. Keep making investments every day through little acts of love and obedience. And sometimes big ones Let God's word build your faith every day. And remember what God has said about himself. With all his heart and soul. Which of us would dare to say that about God? But he says it about himself. With all his heart and soul, he is committed to delivering what he has promised. Let's keep going in faith. And let's praise him together now as we sing, by faith we see the hand of God.